Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. We have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Willosophy, W-I-L-O-S-O-P-H-Y. That is where you can go and donate as little as a dollar a month to keep the lights on on this podcast to pay podcast Mike, Mike Al, our US producer and James Fosdyke, who does all the original art. Everyone on this podcast gets paid, well, apart from me at the moment, but one day if the Patreon gets high enough. Uh, but you guys help uh, put this podcast on. We have the occasional ad of course with charlie clawson my dear friend from tofop and uh, if you've never listened to the tofop podcast and i've seen the numbers i know a lot of you don't listen and that's fair enough it's it's a very different podcast to what this is but if you like the idea of listening to two old mates talk immature nonsense i have a podcast called tofop it's been going for nearly 10 years now and i do it with charlie and we've just released a two-hour look back at the decade. Well, not really. In our traditional style, that's what we intended to do and then got distracted along the way talking about Simpson and his donkey. Anyway, if you listen to TOEFOP, you'll understand what all that nonsense is about. Uh, TOEFOP, T-O-F-O-P. It's a two-hour bonus episode and we've put out a two-hour bonus episode to try and raise money to help uh, Australians who are currently fighting the bushfires because Australia, uh, if you are listening to this when it uh, comes out, is currently on fire and it has been for a very long time and people have lost their properties and their lives and uh, they have been uh, devastated. Uh, Volunteers all over the country giving up their leave and their work to go and help out their fellow Australians and fight these fires and Charlie and I are not much good at holding a hose but we wanted to do something to help. Um, So... We decided to start a GoFundMe page and we put out this bonus episode. And basically what we're asking is that if, if everybody who listens to the episode donates a dollar, we're going to raise a whole bunch of money that we can then donate to the volunteer firefighters and to help people around the country as uh, as best we can. So if you want to go and check that out and if you want to go and donate, that would be really fantastic. Uh, speaking of plugs, um, I also am a stand-up comedian and if you'd like to support this podcast, one of the best ways you can do that is by coming to see one of my shows and in 2020 you're going to have plenty of opportunity to do that because I'm doing three different shows all over the place, different shows in different places over the year. I'm just going to have an entire year where I just dedicate myself to you know, going back to what I truly love which is you know, performing live and doing a bunch of different shows and, and really having some fun doing stand-up and I'm really excited about it. Uh, it kicks off pretty soon. Wyong, you're first off. I'm going to do my Will Legal show there. Then Sydney Comedy Store for two weeks, my improvised show, What You Talking About, Will. They are selling very fast. Uh, the weekends are almost gone. Uh, I recommend coming on the first night. I always think the first night, uh, the Tuesday, is perhaps the best night because when you're doing a completely improvised show, and you know, what you're really trying to do is jump out of an aeroplane and then teach yourself uh, how to fly on the way down. And the first night, there's nothing in your way. I have no preconceived notions of how it will go on the first night. By the second night, it's just a natural human thing that you, I have, you know, I judge that night based on how the night before was. You suddenly go into it with expectations, but the first night, I, I never have any, and it adds an extra layer of excitement to the entire experience. So I do recommend coming early in the week. It's an early show, you know. Yeah, you're out of there by eight twenty. You can be home uh, even on a weeknight, not a school night. So come along to the Sydney Comedy Store if you want to see what you're talking about, Will. After that, I go to Brunswick Heads and do my Will Informed show up at uh, Brunswick Heads for a week. And then uh, Adelaide Fringe for two weeks. I wasn't in Adelaide last year. So I'm really excited to give you getting back to Adelaide and bringing a show, Will Informed, that I did at the Melbourne Comedy Festival last year. But realistically, it was a brand new show in Melbourne. And, you know, that normally takes me a week or two to work out what it is that I'm trying to say. And then I get a couple of weeks of doing it. And then normally I tour it for an entire year. 
Uh, this is the first time ever that I've, I've done all that work, got the show up, sort of worked out what it was, and then I've put it away for almost a year. So I'm currently in the process of looking at that show again and, and rewriting it and reimagining it. And I just think that, yeah, I'm really excited. It's actually, it's just a different way of putting together a show than I've ever put together a show for a tour. And so the opportunity to revisit something and then sort of pick it apart and put it back together is, but with a whole bunch of stuff that I already know that I, I love doing and, and makes a good show. It's been a really exciting experience. So I'm looking forward to doing those shows. Melbourne Comedy Festival, two weeks of Legal, and then two weeks of What You're Talking About, Will. This is the first time ever that I have done my improvised stand-up shows at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Ten shows only. Every show completely different. Uh, no uh, no, uh, no pre-prepared jokes, no, no pre-prepared ideas. Everything created in the room with the audience on the night. Will it be great? I hope so. I hope that it will be great. That's the intention I'm going into it. Um, who the fuck knows? It's all made up on the night. So it will probably be great and shit and all sorts of things in between. But I'm hoping it's going to be a very memorable experience for the people who come along to see it. So come along and see that. And then uh, for the rest of the year, I'm doing shows all over the place. Some of those are already on sale, Brisbane and Perth and Port Macquarie and a whole bunch of other places that will go on sale later in the year. So comedy.com.au, follow the links to my page, find out when I'm going to be coming in doing a show that is somewhere in the vicinity of you and come out and see a show. Today's episode, Scott Pape. Scott Pape is the barefoot investor. People who know that brand, know, know that name, know that uh, Papey is in the financial system and that's a system that I have a lot of skepticism towards because I believe the people at the top exploit the people at the bottom and we can get into that another time in another podcast. But Papey I love because he wants to invert that. He wants to turn that over. He wants to give the people at the bottom the same knowledge as the people at the top have and even out the system a little more and that has been the foundation of what he has done and uh, I'm a great admirer of Papies and it was a real pleasure to have this chat. Something that's very topical obviously with the fires at the moment is we talk about uh, Papies house burning down and uh, what that was like for him and how they had to restart and rebuild and how pivotal was that in uh, that incident in sort of shaping some of his worldview and what he wants to do you know with the the fame and the power that he now has uh, the choices he's making how they um were informed, you know, by that fire. Now, we don't mention the bushfires because we recorded this, you know, a couple of months ago now. And so obviously the bushfires hadn't started burning. So if it seems incongruous that um, we're having a conversation around fire while the fires are burning and not referencing that, that's the only reason. But I actually think this will be a, uh, for anyone who's going through the terror uh, of the fires at the moment, Papey's story about his recovery from that and what it meant for him, I think will be, something that will be very interesting for you to hear. So I hope you really enjoy this episode with Scott Pope. Thanks to everyone who helped me, helps me put on this podcast and get it out weekly. Uh, well, I think we've got a month to go to make sure that we've put out uh, one episode every week for a year. So uh, we're almost there, folks. We've almost done it. Uh, thank you very much for listening and uh, Happy New Year if you're listening to this when it first comes out. Uh, otherwise, I'll talk to you all again soon. Cheers.
Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and this is how the podcast starts. We're just going to get into it today because my next guest, uh, you know, well, I have a lot of things that I would like to talk to him about and uh, I think that we might as well just jump into them, he says, as I'm actually just turning off my phone. That was what I was doing actually, guest of today. This is how the podcast starts. I ask you who you are, who are you? My name is Scott Pape and I am the Barefoot Investor. Yes, now you have a... Not a secret identity, a second identity, the barefoot investor. Yes. Everybody knows the barefoot investor. Well, I mean, we've, how long have we, we worked together now uh, on, uh, well, on Breakfast Radio? Well, two and a half years. Two and a half years. Yeah. And I think in that time, I think we've spoken about five minutes, mm. I reckon. I would say it's about five minutes. I come in, I'm, I'm very much a, a small part of the show. Um, so I'm a little bit uh, uh, intimidated today because I, I generally have sort of one minute s- sound bites and then I'm, I'm, I'm out and back on the farm. Well, so. if you could stretch that to, uh, you know, about an hour and a half, that one minute, that'd be really good. Speak really slowly. I'll do my best. <laughs> now the people know that brand, the Barefoot Investor, yes. like, so let's just start there and get yeah, that sure. out of the way. Sure. Where did that actually come from? The idea of the Barefoot Investor, because it's become such an iconic brand to explain, you know, the area of finance and finance advice and Mm. people's personal relationships with money that you're interested in. So where did it come from? Um, that's a really good question. For me, it was just this idea of, um, kicking off your shoes and treading your own path. That was something that I was really, it just spoke to me about the way that I, my approach to money. Um, I think the, the way most people interacted with me or first learnt about me was with the book and the book, um, that I wrote. Um, so in 2014, um, a fire came through our farm. Um, we lost everything. I was on the show. I was on uh, triple M, um, uh, at the time and yeah, a fire came through. Um, we lost literally everything that we owned. Um, I was, a a young dad. So, uh, my son was sort of one year old. I was a, a new father, uh, and a, a new husband. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking at my farmhouse and everything's gone. Like literally everything is gone. And, um, I remember at that point in time thinking this, this is the worst it's going to get for me. Um, and my wife was crying and my, my son was crying and there was, there was like a helicopter going, uh, going, uh, over the head of us, um, a media helicopter. Um, and it was big news. It was huge news that day. Um, and, uh, I just remember thinking to myself, you know, I've got this, I can, I can do this. Um, it was sort of my, that was the, the idea that, um, no matter what happened to me in that point in time, because I kind of had my money sorted, I was able to be the father and be the, be the, uh, the husband that I, that I needed to be to look after the people that were really important to me. And so the book, the barefoot investor, that everyone knows, um, I am a famous, um, book cover. Um, yeah. If you've ever been, if you've ever walked past somewhere where they sell books, you've airport, seen the book yeah. at the very least. And you know, I thought at that point, I thought that, um, I mean, I wrote the book, and it was actually a really dark thing because after we went through that and we lost everything, um, uh, I started writing this book. And, and before that, I thought to myself, you know what? No one buys books anymore, mm. right? So I'm just going to, um, but I'm going to give it a go because I, I, I wanted to tell that story, right? And my, my thinking was that I went through a financial fire, right? So that happened to me. 
but everyone goes through something. We don't get out of this, you know, without, um, it could be your, um, it could be, um, going to work and your boss laying you off. It could be going to the doctor and saying things are not well. Um, uh, it could be just looking at your super statement and saying, I don't have enough to retire. So everyone faces that fire at some point in time. And so what I wanted to do was write a book, um, that helped people with that. Again, I didn't think anyone was going to read it. Honestly, I thought that I would sell maybe 20,000 copies, which is still quite a lot, but I've been in writing in the newspapers. Well, 20,000 copies is, would make it a bestseller. It would Australia. make it a bestseller. Yeah. How, how many copies has it sold at last count? Uh, it's, it's getting close to, it would be getting close to 2 million, I think. That's more than 20,000. It right? is a little bit yeah. more than 20,000. I'm, I'm not the maths guy. maths guy, but yeah, more. So, <laughs> so yeah, I, I started re- writing it and it was quite dark because I went through a lot of stuff there because, um, you know, I'm a farmer. Uh, and uh, a lot of our animals were burnt to death mm. in that fire. And there was just a lot of stuff that came up from it. And the first few drafts were, I'd send it off to the editor and I'm like, damn, this is really dark. Um, but I found hope through it. And what has been really uh, awesome is every day, literally every day, I get people who have read that book whether their husbands just walked out on them or they've just received a really bad diagnosis or they've paid off 50 grand in credit card debt or whatever it is. And it is just amazing, um, the power of that book. Um, and so I'm incredibly grateful for it uh, to have happened. Do uh, So much to unpack in that. Um, I might just, seeing we're at the fire anyway, let's, sure. let's, let's you know, kind of spend a bit of time there and we can move sure. on to the effect that the book's had on other people's lives. Mm. Do you think it would have been a very different book if you'd end up writing a finance book without the fire? You know, the, the idea that you kind of had to start from scratch. Well, you didn't. I mean, that's the yeah. point, right? That you had, you know, money in place, that you had yeah. these things in place. But yeah. but in a sort of, you know, very in, in that literal sense of everything being burnt to the ground and, you know, dealing with the trauma of losing, you know, prized possessions and things that money can't buy and yeah. that can't be replaced. And yeah. as you said, being a farmer and seeing you know, your animals that was the you know, die and, and having to deal with the grief of that yeah. as well and yeah. rebuild, you know, your life out of that. There must have, was there ever a point where you thought, well, maybe this, you know, maybe we pack up this lifestyle and we go and live a different life somewhere else. Yeah. And, and, you know, that was so, so the, to answer your first question, mm. I wouldn't have written the book if the fire didn't happen. Right. Um, no one sits down and says, you know what, I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to, you know, spend the next hundreds of hours writing, you know, a hundred thousand words on something. So for me, it was the belly of that moment that I explained when I, when I finally had to put my, uh, big boy pants on and be the father and, uh, be the husband when the house was where everything was gone. Um, so I don't think I would have written the book had I not had that, um, fire in me. Did you think... Let's stop doing what we're doing oh, now. That's good. Yeah, that's good. And point. go and do something else. Or were you always like, let's rebuild what we have yeah. have now? So so for me, right, I've always been a country boy, right? So I was born in Oyen, uh, in the Mallee. Um, and I've always wanted to be um in the country. So I've got um three kids and uh for me it was just I wanted them to be out in the country. I I I didn't want them in front of screens. Uh that was kind of my upbringing and I want to give it to them. I, uh, met Liz on the 7pm project. She was my producer, right? She's from North Fitzroy. So she had, she was really as, um, inner city lefty as she could come. And I dragged her out to Romsey, right? So there was a time there, you know, when we drove in and, you know, our sheep, are, 
you know, I won't get too graphic, but they were burnt alive. Nice. You know, it was, it was just horrible. Like, and to see, um, things like, you know, Liz's wedding dress, um, uh, uh, photos of Liz's father who died before I could meet him gone. You know, it was an incredibly emotional time. And at the time I was the channel seven money guy. Right. So I was being hounded by the media so that, that, that we had, um, uh, reporters chasing us. We had, um, helicopters. Yeah. You know, everyone wanted the story when all I really wanted to do was protect my family. That's all I wanted to do. And so I remember very vividly, um, putting my arm around Liz, uh, and saying, we can just sell this joint. We, we can just move somewhere else, you know? Um, and she said to me, this is home. This is our home. And it was at that point, I'm like, rep, okay, so we, re- re- we rebuild, we build a bigger dam. <laughs> so we've got <laughs> yep. some water supplies, but we rebuild. Um, but yeah, the other thing with losing everything is you do have a sliding doors moment. You know, basically I found it as a money guy really interesting because it's like someone's going to take all your shit and just hand you a big freaking check. And it's like, you could do whatever you could go to New York. You could, you could, you could, uh, live somewhere else. You could have a totally different life. And that to me was really interesting. And the thing that we got out of that, I remember for the first year, we're living in a, um, in a, a rental house and we were drinking wine out of, um, coffee cups. Um, and we really didn't buy anything for 12 months. Yeah. When you actually have to replace everything you realize just how much things just don't matter. Like physical things don't matter. So for me, that was a, um, that was a really interesting part of my life. And, and I don't think I could write that book again. Um, I think that it was a point in time where, um, I have been, um, I've lived a very privileged life. You know, I had parents that loved me. Um, we weren't the wealthiest, but you know, I lived, I've lived a very good life, but what that fire taught me and being put in that situation is, um, it taught me a lot of empathy that there are a lot of other people who are going, we're all going to face something. And if I could write a book that could help people through it, that was the goal. So it feels like that is what the book has really struck a chord with, with people in mm. that, you know, everybody has their own version of that fire. Like you said, yeah. it might not be as big a fire, mm-hmm. um, you know, but sometimes, you know, a much smaller fire to somebody who has much less stuff, you know, can still be as devastating, you know? And, Absolutely. And, and as you said, that could be, a, you know, a relationship breakup. It could be, you know, being injured and not being able to work. It could be, you know, losing your job, any of these sort of, you know, setbacks or just, you know, having an unexpected, you know, cost, you know, that means that you can't cover the school fees or what, yeah, I whatever mean, else and, it is. And the thing about Australia right now is we are, um, depending on the, the research, um, the second wealthiest country on earth, mm. Switzerland, number one, right? But the other thing is Australia has one of the highest rates of household debt in the world. So yeah, we're really, really wealthy, mm. but we've also got just a heap of debt. So my question has always been, I've been banging this drum for a long time, is we have some of the rate, the highest rates of household debt in the world at a time when interest rates are at all time lows. They've never been lower than they are right now. Eventually those rates are going to come up and what happens to those people who have um, taken on record debt when interest rates are at record lows? That is what worries me, not from an economics point of view, but from a family point of view, you know, because money runs through, you know, the number one cause of relationship breakdown um, is money. 
and monogamy, but but mainly money is is what causes those um, fractures. So for me, again, um, we are all going to face our own financial fire. It will be different for everyone, but I think this debt thing, um, I don't know when it goes off. It's like a bomb. It's going to go off at some stage. Um, and I just hope that enough people work out that you don't need all this stuff that we get marketed to. All you need to do is when that point happens to you, you have the ability to go, you know what, I'm okay. And okay may be, um, you know, when, when the fire came through, I didn't even have my wallet. You know, I had a baby in, in, in nappies. We had no money, you know, and, and so it's just that humbling experience to say, you know, no matter what happens to me, I'm going to be okay. And that doesn't, you don't need a million bucks for that. You don't need a BMW for that. You just need enough money there that you can say, I can stand on my own two feet and I can look after the people that I care about. Uh, money is such an interesting area. So why did yes. you become interested in money in the first place? Like what was your relationship to money? Like as a young person, why was it something that you decided that, because the, my outside impression, yes. I'm, I'm and we, we some, sometimes have chats about yes. yeah, these things sort of you know, off air, but I'm a... I, I wouldn't say that I'm terrible with money, mm-hmm. but I, I bet that people who are good with money would say that I'm terrible with money, <laughs> you know, in that money just isn't the motivating factor of my life. And I've yep. always been lucky enough that my, the skills that I have, have been employable. Yeah. So my solution to any time that I have some sort of financial issue is just to do something else and, you know, pay off the thing or you know, sure. deal with it, you know, but in regards to my relationship with money. It's just not something that's high on my priority list. Yeah. But it feels to me that in a general sense, that having conversations around money are awkward for everyone to have regardless. So I don't know if there are heaps of people who are like me who don't think about money and don't have the right well, interest got, rate. And, well, you've got a lot of money. That's the first thing. Well, to, I'm just being honest. Yeah, you, I do you, now. You don't, have, you don't have the issues that a lot of people do. You know, you've got, yes. you, you're a very well-paid uh, Australian celebrity. Yes. So you don't have, um, thank you, Scott. I, you, Scott's reading from the notes I prepared for. Him. Well, and, you no. know, I'm just saying that, that, you know, um, you know, we can get into this in, in a moment. Um, but you know, I've spent the last year helping very vulnerable, uh, people. And, you know, there is that point that once you earn over about 70 grand or mm. thereabouts, you hit the economics of enough, but mm. 70 grand in Australia, you should be able to have a roof over your head, um, clothes, um, you know, feed your family, educate them, um, transportation, every dollar thereafter is a diminishing, um, uh, return of happiness. So, you know, I, I don't want to be rude, but I'm just saying that you are, you don't have to worry about, well, as money. you know, I make $71,000 a year and you're absolutely <laughs> right. So no, but you're right. No, absolutely. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't, I don't have to worry yeah, and that is, and that is a way. huge thing. That is a huge thing that a lot of people don't have. There's a lot of people that earn a lot of money that worry about money all the time. Mm. In fact, one of the ironies of money is the more money you earn, the more money, the more you stress. Mm. Um, no one really tells you that, but it, but it is kind of true for a lot of people. I'm kind of like you in that money isn't a huge motivator for me. So to get back to it, I, I was indoctrinated into it. My dad, um, so we grew up in Oyen, um, um, wonderful little town about an hour from uh, Muldura. Do you know it? Yes. You do? Yeah. Um, so my dad quit school when he was, you know, 15. My mum, same same sort of age. And my dad, I think if he had have lived in a different time, he would have been a finance guy. But uh, that was just never in on his radar. But for me, he would um, take me 
down to, I remember on a Sunday morning and we'd buy the newspaper and I would read the finance pages to him. Right. And I would watch, um, uh, a business Sunday with a youthful Terry McCran. Didn't really understand what they were talking about. But, you know, I, I have mates that whose fathers would wake him up and make them tinker on cars, right? And he became a mechanic, you know, and suddenly I'm a finance guy because my dad always had an interest in it. But then the other, the juxtaposition of that is my old man is very much a country boy, you know, and he's like, whatever you do, don't become a wanker. You know, always look after people. And so I think part of my journey with, with money was that I was never interested in getting rich myself. Uh, it was more about, I was really interested in people rather than the finances or the money. So that's kind of where the motivation came for me. So uh, this to me, you know, seems completely on brand for the work that you do. So, yeah. I mean, that barefoot investor, Monica, really, yeah, there's a part of that that says I am here for you. This advice well, is... I, yeah, so I always worry about that because um, because that can sort of seem a little bit self-serving. But the one thing that I would say um, is after the book sold a million copies, right, I had a lot of options. Like I had a lot of people coming to me because it just came out of nowhere. Like it was with Wiley, which is a, which is a, a, a bookseller that is not supposed to sell many books. Mm. Um, and so we had a lot of, I had like, you know, I could do financial planning. Uh, I could do a hedge fund. I could make a lot of money. And I remember sitting down with Liz and we, we had our date night and, uh, she's like, what are we going to do next? Cause we are, we are very much a team, my wife and I, she's my, my number one producer. And I said, you know what I think I'm going to do? Uh, I think I'm going to go and, uh, go back and study at TAFE. And she's like, what? TAFE. Yeah. You know, I mean, you've got a degree. What are you doing going to TAFE? And I said, you know, I want to go back and study to become a financial counselor. Now, a financial counselor, most people don't know what they are, but they are employed by government agencies, Selvos. When I, when the, when the fire went through, in order for me, it was declared a disaster zone. So in order for me to get back to my house, I had to sit down with a financial counselor and the financial counselor, um, I had no money. They had to give me $500. I had nothing. And I remember being very, uh, dismissive of that financial counselor. And I said, look, I've got money, just sign this piece of paper and get me out of here. And she put her hand on my hand and she said, um, honey, you've, you've got, um, a, a little son. You've just lost everything you own. I'm a financial counselor. I'm here to help. And I rem I've always remembered that. And that's why 10% of the proceeds of the book which actually worked out to be quite a lot of money. Mm. <laughs> Went to financial yeah. counseling. Came, came up with that as an idea Went when you didn't realize you were going to sell 2 million yeah, copies of the book. Financial counseling Australia. <laughs> uh, there's like a gold statue of me there. But you know, anyway, so I said to Liz, I'm going to go back to TAFE to study to become a financial counselor. Yeah. So over the last 12 months, that's what I've done. And so a financial counselor uh, is employed by the government or um, like the Selvos or not-for-profits. Uh, and what they do is they come in and help people who are the most, most vulnerable. It's free. It's a free service. It's totally independent. So I have been studying this, uh, and it has been absolutely really interesting, um, because not only the coursework of learning the empathy skills and the counseling skills that I didn't have, because I've always been a traditional finance guy, but also being able to, it's taken me into some amazing places. Like I've, I've done financial counseling at the women's prison here in Melbourne. Um, and just, 
it's just opened my eyes to a whole nother, a whole nother life, a whole, a whole nother a part of society that I would never have seen. And also, you know, uh, part of the, the, the course, you have to do 220 hours of counseling. Um, and, uh, yeah, I've just found it to be really interesting. And so I guess that for well, me, before we move on from yeah. that, I mean, the speaking in the, going to the women's prison and doing financial, financial counseling in that regard, I imagine, you know, and without me, I, I want you to speak to this, but so many of the people who find themselves in those situations probably find themselves in those situations because of something that started with them not having money. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's complex. Um, and that is the, that is the thing that I have learned through this process is that, um, um, it's very easy to judge people, but people have complex needs. Um, most of the women in there, um, are victims of, uh, family violence, um, that, or, or sexual abuse. Um, and they have self-medicated with drugs. Um, a lot of them have self-medicated with gambling, most of them are mothers. That's one of the reasons that, um, I'm passionate about it because, you know, I've spoken to women there who, um, have been victims of family violence, um, and who have got into drugs or gambling as a result. And the people that really suffer are the kids, you know, because the kids are now, they get the kids taken away from them. Um, uh, they're in jail and you just see the disintegration of that entire family and it doesn't need to be that way. And a lot of the reasons those women are in there and they're in there for a long time is they've fallen through the system. You know, they don't have the lawyers. That wouldn't happen to you or I, you know, I've met women in there that have been put away for stealing a couple of thousand dollars to feed a pokey addiction. Um, and you just look at it and go, you got two kids in school. You got a husband that, or a partner that is just a jerk and this is just a real mess. So for me, and, and at the opposite end of that, particularly in the finance world, you often see people who have, you know, yeah, yeah, like millions of dollars. No know, one have, went to jail, my friend. No one went to jail, um, for the Royal Commission. No bankers went to mm. jail. Um, you know, and, and you know, one of the, one of the, my best, um, Royal Commission stories was, um, I had a single mum. she was a migrant, um, uh, and she read my book. And she got to the part where it said, you need to check your super fees. So she rang up uh, NAB and she said, uh, I've checked my super fees and there's this financial advice, um, uh, charge there. And they basically told her to piss off, you know, to piss off, basically just bounced her around different departments. She went back to the book and she's like, no, 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 I'm a single mum, three kids. Um, I'm a migrant. Uh, I don't, I've never seen a financial advisor. So she went back again. And they told her to piss off again. And then the third time, um, she wouldn't take no for an answer. And she was one of the people that brought about the, uh, the complaint about NAB, which unraveled through the financial, uh, the Royal Commission fees for no service. She was one of the, one of the people. And, uh, we actually had her on triple M because, um, the bank were really scathing when I, when I wrote about it and they said that I'd made it up. So we put her on the show, um, and, uh, yeah, so again, um, there are sort of two rules, you know, you've got, um, these guys that are getting paid tens of millions of dollars who fees for no service is theft. That's what it is. You've stolen from people. So you should go to jail, you know, and, uh, if I charge somebody to, you know, do a stand up gig and then I didn't turn up and I still expected the money, 
they wouldn't give me the money. Well, it's even worse than that. I mean, if you and I walked out to the Seven Eleven and stole mm. um, two hundred bucks, we would go. We would, you know, be mm. taken down to the police station. But there are different rules um, for bankers, and I think that was the anger that came out of the Royal Commission. My problem is nothing really happened. Mm. See, really. this is this is the worry that I have as well. You know, and you hope that. But you, you see what a big fuss was made. We heard all these terrible stories. We saw that, you know, many of the major bl- banks seemed complicit or at least were doing the, yeah. you know, the same things or similar things or were ripping off their customers in, in similar ways. And yep. they seemed to have the attitude of, well, what's anyone going to do about it? And the truth of it is, I understand that because it is so complex to change banks to, well, it feels at least like a big complex thing if you have a mortgage or whatever to go, you know, oh yeah, I saw the Royal Commission was bad and the bank that I bank with did some terrible things during the Royal Commission, but... I got soccer practice on Wednesday and I'm, uh, you know, I've got a a million things to do. So it's just not that high on my radar. Unless you're one of the people who was personally you know, really genuinely victimized by it. The rest yep. of us who are just being slightly victimized by it, by the, you know, just go about our business and, yeah. you know, just get ripped off in the small ways and don't yeah. think we can do anything about it. And mm. despite the fact that we've had this Royal Commission, like you said, no one's gone to jail. It feels like barely anyone lost their job really in a mm. substantial way. Mm. That paid out billions of dollars in yes. compensation, but they were kind of expecting mm. that. But it's it sort of almost feels like it's business as usual. And to be honest with you... um, this has been happening for hundreds of years. Guys in sharp suits who control money have been ripping people off forever. And my view is it's probably never going to change because they have more of a motivation to try and screw you over than we do. We, you know, we're, we're just trying to, you know, get home at the end of the night and tuck the kids in bed and, you know, cobble together dinner, you know? So I, I don't think that motivation is going to change. Um, one of the things for me, my second big thing after I wrote The Barefoot Investor um, was the idea of there needs to be a financial revolution in this country and it needs to start with our kids. And so my view, what I've been doing, I, I launched this thing called The Barefoot Money Movement and it's all about um, getting independent financial education in schools because it is the one topic or the one subject that every kid will be tested on whether they become a comedian, whether they go on to be a a plumber uh, or a CEO, everyone gets tested on that every day of their lives. And these banks, as we have seen, are doing these split tests, these ABs, they've got the smartest marketers trying to get you to, um, you know, it basically entrap you into paying as much interest as you can for as long as you can. So for me, um, that is what I've been doing. I, I launched this thing called the Barefoot Money Movement. It went completely bananas. And that's, you know, why you probably haven't seen me that much. I've spent the last sort of, you know, six months or so trialing it around, around, uh, the country. Okay. So firstly, speak to me about the idea of, uh, you know, cause it, uh, we've spoken about this, you know, off air yes. uh, a bunch of times, which yeah. is, I think one of the great crimes of uh, the Australian education system is that I, that I finished high school having learned a whole bunch of things that I would never yeah. need to know in my life. Yeah. And yet you sort of basics that you really do need to know. And, and a lot of them do revolve around just basic financial knowledge, you yeah. know, how to pay your taxes mm. and, you know, you know, what receipts you should keep and just really basic yeah, yeah. everyday stuff that, that there's no way to avoid unless you become Amish and go and live in, you know, do you mean like that yeah. every single person has to deal with in their life? Yeah. Basic financial knowledge just was not 
taught to me in school. Don't get me wrong. I got a little, you know, Commonwealth Bank uh, Dolomite saving oh, you account. Did. And uh, I now, 45 years later, still bank with the Commonwealth Bank. So that hooked me in. Well, and uh, yeah, yeah, well, it does, right? That was their recruitment program. They did it specifically so that you would set up your bank with the Commonwealth Bank. And if you're like me, you've never changed banks in your entire life can, since. Can I just um, say that uh, I was just in Perth uh, and... Uh, and I have been outwardly very aggressive against Commonwealth Bank. I, I say my, my line is that it's having Commonwealth Bank in schools is like having Ronald McDonald teach your kids about food and nutrition. This is one of the greatest Australian um, advertising campaigns in history. Um, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of kids have been signed up. Um, and um, it has meant billions of dollars in revenue to them. Um, and... Uh, I was in doing uh, school banking uh, last week uh, in Perth, and so I just I decided that I would I would uh, uh, do it at a school, and uh, it's really quite weird in that they have this cartoon character, um, a, a dolomite called Cred, and Cred stands for credit cards, and Cred's a really cool dude, and these kids, um, you know are bringing this money in that they're not really earning. They're not really working for it, but they get these shitty toys. Um, they're not even happy meal toys. They're just really bad toys. Like, you know, slap bands and just like erasers and stuff. It's like, really? Can it, you know, you, this, this customer is worth thousands of dollars for you. So, so not only, um, you know, and they pay a kickback to the school, right? But the volunteer does it for free, right? So Sharon's mum in grade two is, is working for the Combank. And I worked it out. It's about $2.50 an hour that she is getting to, to, to sign up kids to what is, has been valued at a $10 billion campaign. And so my problem with Dolomites is that it's been around for 85 years or thereabouts. And so my first question is, um, if it's been around for 85 years, it hasn't worked because we've got record high, um, household debt, um, we know that our kids' financial literacy has gone nowhere, so it hasn't worked. It's worked very well for the Combank, but it hasn't worked well for Australian kids. Um, that's the first thing. And then the second one is, um, I met with the CBA and I said, um, I want to know, uh, Will, at eight years old, gets a Dolomite account. What's the statistics on whether Will will get a credit card? How likely is he? And they said, you know, we just don't have that data. <laughs> I'm like, you spend a billion dollars on technology, you know everything about everyone and you don't have that data. And he's like, nah, funny, huh? Yeah. And so in the course of doing this, I met a woman who was a student banking representative and they made a mistake on her kid's um, application form. And instead of saying she was eight, they said she was 18. And wouldn't you know it, Commonwealth Bank sent them a pre-approved credit card in the mail. So again, I think that, um, having Combank in schools, um, it's the corporatization of the classroom that I don't like. So after the barefoot investor, I thought, you know what, I've got a bit of a following. I'm going to launch this, um, barefoot investor money movement. So I put, I reckon a couple of hundred grand of my own money into this program. Um, both. So just, so let's talk about the philosophy behind it before we launch into what it is, because as you said, you had a, another sliding doors moment after the su- success of the book. You've had the sliding doors moment that's led when the house has burnt down, where you have the opportunity to start afresh in whatever way. And you've decided that what I'm going to do is I'm going to write this book and I'm going to yeah. sh- you know, share the story yeah. and I'm going to try to help other people. But then it sells, you know, 2 million copies. And to be honest, you could just like 
you know, literally kick off the shoes that you don't have and, uh, you know, be a, be an author, you know, just be an author if you wanted to be, yeah. you know, uh, you could, as you said, go and you know, set up a hedge fund or you could yeah. do all these other, you know, opportunities to make yourself extremely wealthy in a way that, yeah. you know, nobody, you know, the rest of the world doesn't even consider because that's what happens then in sure. that, in that big money world, you start to just, you know, play with money, you know, for the sake of, you yeah. know, the scoreboard is how much money you're making. Yeah. And instead you decide, nah, I'm going to TAFE. Yeah. I'm going to learn how to be a financial counselor yeah. and then I'm going to invest a whole bunch of my own money in starting this, you know, financial literacy program that yeah. nobody else is going to do. So why, why, I guess, before we get to what it is, what thought process, what, you know, philosophy in your life gets you to the point where you say, this is what I want to do with my time, money and energy. I think, I think, I think part of it is, um, country, uh, upbringing. Um, as cliched as that sounds like, you know, I never, my parents were, I've, I've said I was, um, incredibly privileged because I had a loving family. We weren't wealthy, but, um, but you know, I had, I have very strong family values. Um, I'm lucky to be married to a woman who shares those values. And, uh, I'm also lucky to have, um, spent most of my life talking to people about money and realizing that more money is not going to make me any happier. Um, I never expected to sell as many copies of my book as I have, and it has been incredibly um, fulfilling and financially rewarding. But, you know, I thought, you know, what's the best use of my time? I've got this um, platform. Um, what can I do? Right. And so the first thing that sort of came to me was that 80% of the population in, here's the way I look at it. 80% of the population can, can buy my book, can read it or someone else's book, Koshi's book and, and make positive change in their life. Right. And there's about 20%, I'm using the Pareto's principle here, so it's kind of rubbery, but 20% of people have complex needs and things that have happened to them that they can't just go to a Tony Robbins seminar and, you know, feel the passion. You know, they are, there is entrenched welfare. There are things that have happened in their life and those people all too often slip through the cracks. So I thought, you know, the first thing was that, um, I wanted to try and I've always had an interest in that to try and help people. And what I've kind of worked out is that it changes really hard when you're in that spot, but there is kids underneath that, that you can actually help. Um, and that has been my driver. So it's taken a while to get there, but it really is that, um, being able to, um, help young people at the start of their lives, um, before maybe they've made some mistakes, um, is in, there's a compound on that. I was just in, um, um, I was just in Brazil and, um, the largest school money program in the world pilot was in Brazil. And I was in the, um, in the favelas, which is, um, Portuguese slums. And what they did was they realized that they needed cultural change because, um, Brazilians are hugely in debt. It's a, it's a, it's an emerging country, uh, emerging economy. And what they did is they call their students, the multipliers. So they learn about financial education and they go back to the favelas where they are kind of like wise people and they help their families. And it's, that sounds really simple. But it was the first time in financial education literature where they realized that the kids can be the agents for change. And so that kind of got me thinking that in Australia, we've got huge amounts of debt. We've got a hugely consumerist society. But if you can focus on kids with the message that seems to be resonating with 
um, the population, maybe we can make some change. So you've got the world's biggest uh, influence industry, the advertising and marketing industry yes. that works on the idea of that consumption is king. You yes. know, the more you buy, the happier you're going to be, yes. you know, um, and the entire, you know, capitalist system really is yeah. set up around the idea of buy more shit, buy more shit. You know, don't be happy with what you have because yeah. if you're happy with what you have, you're not going to buy more shit. And the whole system relies on constant growth and yep. buying more shit. So mm. when you have these weapons of, you know, mass advertising pointed at these kids every day, every time they yeah. look at their phone or their TV, yeah. they are surrounded by the idea that, you know, consumption is what the world is about and you'll be judged by your car and your house and your yep. clothes and, you know, the, the video game console you play and the type of phone you have and all these sort of things. What is it that you can teach kids at, at the start that is going to help combat all that other messaging they're getting in their world? So um, with the, the primary school program that we've put through, um, it's called the Jam Jar Project. And um, it's obviously not affiliated with any bank um, what the kids do is, um, they bring in, I learned this from the Combank, right? Who do the shitty toys, mm -hmm. um, to motivate them. I get the kids to do what's known as a toy frenzy. So they come in, um, and these are grade threes, you know, so we're, you know, we're talking, you know, they're young kids. Mm. They bring in toys that they no longer use and books, right? And then they sell them, they bring them into class and they sell them to the rest of the kids. And the cool thing about kids at that age is they just lose their mind uh, about buying anything. Like everything's great, you know? And so what I'm delicately doing there is talking about all that stuff that you wanted that, you know, that they do that pester power thing where they try and, you know, get the kids all hyped up so the parents will buy it. You know, you only play with a small handful of toys and the rest you kind of forget about. But if you bring them in, you can see other kids getting excited. So there's, this is a sustainability piece. Uh, and there's that idea that you don't have to have everything new. And also that the cost of things really drop. So that's, that's one of the things. And then what they do is they, the class, they, they, um, they, they get the money and they put them into three jam jars. Um, and so they can splurge some money as a class and they get to vote on that and they buy lollies or whatever they want to do. Um, um, they can um, save up for something that um, is going to make them smile. So it could be a book or a reader or something as a class. And then the final one is a gift jar. And, um, one of the schools that we just, um, worked on was a school in Harvey, uh, Bay. Uh, and that's a really, that, that community is struggling a little bit. Um, they're trialing the welfare card there. Um, but what was really awesome about that little school is that they decided, the kids decided that they wanted to give their give jar to a local homeless shelter. And so the representative from the homeless shelter came and said to the kids, because of what you have done, because of your generosity, you have fed 25 people within your community who wouldn't have breakfast that morning. And to see the look in those kids' eyes when they realized that they were heroes, they could do it, there was a, there was a change I saw in them. And to the point where I spoke to the principal the other day, and he said, now, not only have they continued doing this, but it's a whole school program. So again, the biggest fear that most parents have is that their kids are going to grow up to be spoiled, entitled brats, right? That is the biggest fear people have. And there are two things that, that break that. The first one is getting your kids to work. And that's what they have to do within my little program. They're all working, doing something. They're working on putting on the toy frenzy, but then you have to give, you have to be, um, you know, generous. And so that's what my little program does. Um, it's been 
I've just been, again, I put a lot of money into it myself, but it's been amazing. Like, I, I mean, it's just the best return ever because, you know, it's to be able to influence that is, has been great. So tell me about uh, going, I mean, you said you were in the, the favelas. They are incredibly dangerous. Like from what yeah. I know, the little I know I've not been, yes. but, but you hear stories of, you know, that even with, you know, the right security and whatever, they're yeah. quite dangerous places to visit. Did you visit as well? You yeah. were in there. Yeah. So, um, so, uh, I've got a documentary crew following this journey of the, um, the barefoot money movement. And part of it was to go and see this groundbreaking financial, uh, educational money school, uh, program in Brazil. Um, and it just so happened that it was, um, it was centered around a, uh, favela called Racinha, uh, in Brazil. And, um, so we went there and I believe we made a donation to the, um, to the favela because favelas are, are really controlled by the drug. You got out your give jar. Got out my give jar. <laughs> so we're going to have to give that to some, uh, gangsters yeah. who run these favelas. Yeah. And so, and so what was really lovely about it was, um, was that, uh, it was a good news story, you know, and there's not a lot of good news stories about them. So it was a, a, a powerful story in that. I was focused on the kids at the sort of in the foothills of this favela at the school who were learning these skills and were able to take it back and help other people. But yeah, I was up in the, in, in sort of, uh, right at the top of the favela, there were gunshots going on. Um, but I had a, um, a, a minder with me who made sure that everything was fine. And I got to meet a lot of inspiring kids who had turned their lives around by learning these skills. So again, um, the idea that they are multipliers, that they learn this knowledge and then they go back and uh, affect their, their family really sort of struck a chord with me. So my view is you teach the kids, um, you help the parents and you can change the nation. So I'm going really, I know it sounds really broad, but, and, and sort of, um, motivational, but it is that idea that if you can, um, teach kids, they bring it home to the parents, the parents realize, hang on we're role models, right? We need to, this is stuff that's got to happen at home. Um, then you can try and get some cultural change. I mean, that's, you know, that's how caged eggs aren't a thing anymore or, you know, walking, you know, putting sunscreen on, it starts with the kids and they influence the parents. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do, um, with my program. So what do you think that we should know financially by the time we finish school? Like what is the basic starter pack? that every sort of, you know, person should be able to like finish their education and come out of school knowing? Well, I'm, I have the Barefoot 10 there. Oh, um, so this is part of uh, my book, Barefoot Invested for Families. So, so what I did yes. was I created the Barefoot 10, which is essentially what you do is you, you check these off with your kids mm. over a number of years. Um, and if you've done these 10 things with your kids, you've pretty much done all you can to stop them living in the spare bedroom when they're 35. Okay, You've so done your job. I'm going to run through the barefoot yeah. 10 and see how many of them I, yeah, I had done by the time please. I finished high school. So I opened a zero-fee, high-interest savings account. I'm going to say, <laughs> no. Oh, no, I'm actually going to say maybe. I definitely think that you're I had- You're a dollar, my kid. I, yeah, but I had some savings, definitely, but I'm, maybe it wasn't zero. You, right. you're, yeah, that's right. Well, so the it would have been me, zero fees, probably. The, the thing right. for me is that I want kids yes. to actually open a good bank account yes. to build their confidence. Because for many people- that is the first good financial decision they've made. And small wins lead to big wins. Okay. Yeah. So I don't think, yes. I think I was probably half pregnant on that one. Half. I'll, I'll give myself half a half. mark for that. 
Bought and sold something secondhand. Oh, my car was secondhand when I bought it, but I don't think I would have sold anything well, secondhand. Well, this is the idea of the family does a treasure yeah. hunt, just to actually, again, work out that things fall in value and that you can buy secondhand. And it also is that anti-brainwashing of the advertising. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to give myself half for that one as well. Jesus, yeah, yeah, okay. okay. Yeah. Learn to cook at least two low-cost, delicious, nutritious meals from scratch. Are you ever cooking for... I mean, mum and dad. Uh, I don't know. I'm baked beans sure. do not count. Yeah, well, I was going to say toast, baked beans, uh, <laughs> pretty much anything like <laughs> two minute noodles. Well, it's just that idea again of getting kids to um, cooking is a great skill to have, uh, and it's also you know teaches them budgeting and stuff. And they and they do. We have this thing where you, they cook a meal for their grandparents or family friend. Uh, volunteered in the local community. I'm giving us that's the first one I'm getting a tick on. Oh, okay. I'm getting a tick for volunteering in the local community. That yeah. was. I mean, I'm like you. I'm from the country, and yeah. you know. I think volunteering in the local community is something that in the country you don't really get much of a, you know, um, even if it's like, you know, running the boundary line for the local footy team or whatever, there's always room for a volunteer. My dad still does the scoring at the footy at age 76. That's how it works. That's how the country works. So I'll get, that's my first full tick though. We're we're down to what? Number five. (laughs) One full tick and a couple of halves at this stage. Uh, uh, saved at least $100 on your household bills. Oh, no. Well, so, so this is what I'm doing. I'm getting so the kids is, yes, here. To save their parents' money. Yeah. And the idea that of just saying, you know, get a bill, give it to your kids, give it to your mouthy teenager, mm. get them to try and negotiate for you and split them, give them a bit of commission. Promise to never, ever get a credit card. Okay. Yeah. Did Will, the little Will Dolomite kid, end up getting a graduating to a credit card? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've got several credit cards. <laughs> What are you talking about, Scotty? <laughs> tick. <laughs> no, no, it's a cross. It's a tick for Commonwealth not, Bank. Yeah, not good. Uh, yeah, and another tick for American Express as well. Uh, so. Don't leave home without it. <laughs> well, you can for a lot of places that don't take it or all just charge you outrageous <laughs> fees to use it. But anyway. Uh, got a part-time job at age 15. Yes, I had a, I had a part-time job since age 15. That is one that I can uh, give myself a full tick. Mm-hmm. Uh, earned at least one glowing reference from a boss. Mm. Glowing reference? I've, I, 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 yeah, I was all right. I was a pretty nerdy kid. I think I <laughs> yeah, probably, okay. that would have been all right. Opened up an ultra low cost, high growth super fund. <laughs> 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 I don't think that I still have a low cost high growth super fund. <laughs> we can talk about that later. I thought that I had uh, put all my super into at least one. I remember you talking. I was about pretty this. sure that I'd put them all into one, and but I'm still getting. That was let- one of our first conversations. Yeah. I'm still getting letters from at least two separate it was ones. Very so vague. I've not. It's very loose. No, I've not put them all into one. I'm pretty sure. Uh, and, uh, set up a savings account for a home deposit. No, no, I, I, I had, sa- I had saved enough money to buy my car, so, my secondhand car, but not for a home deposit. No. So the idea with that is that, um, too many kids I see that may not be mathematically based. They get through, um, school and they leave school, not having learned anything about money. And their parents have told them they're no good with money. Um, and then they get afterpay, they get credit cards, they get car loans, store loans. The whole world is conspiring to get them to spend stuff. They come to me at age 25 and say, of course I'm no good with money and I've got the credit card bill to prove it. And so for me, what I want to do 
is try and build up people's confidence when they're still in school. So they leave going, I'm really good with money. You know, I've ticked all those things off and they're all experience based, right? So I am good with money and that can change the course of your life. Well, it can because, you know, in the same way as when you're going into the favelas, right? You understand you're going into a dangerous world so that you have to have the appropriate Ah. security. You have to have the protection. You need to know what you're walking into, the ways that you could possibly be ripped off or hurt Mm. or be in danger. Like the world, as you said, is set up to take the money out of yeah. our wallets yeah. and, you know, and to say to you, oh, you don't even need the money right now. You can pay it off later. Like every you know, place is going, you need this now. Yeah. Here it's bright and shiny. Yeah. Have this thing. Yeah. So y- you need to be, have some armor against, you know, all the different ways that the world is trying to rip you off. And that armor really is financial confidence, right? So one of the things, um, that, uh, in my book, which I didn't realize as I was writing it, but within, I think about the first 20 pages, people are sitting down at a date night in a pub, uh, or a restaurant and they're choosing a better bank account. And for a lot of people that could have been the first good financial decision they've made. Right. And it saved them hundreds of dollars in fees. Right. And it, and again, what it is, it's building people's confidence up because most people are insecure when it comes to money, right? They think they don't know enough. Um, and, and really this whole process of the barefoot 10 and even the primary school one is just building behaviors and values and skills so that people feel confident. And that's kind of, that is my, my philosophy. Yeah. So, well, great. Because do you think that it is embarrassment that keeps people from what, what is the major factor? Because I know I certainly have made a series of, you know, I, I am the person that all these companies and all these things would love because mm. I'm the one who goes when they say, and we'll lock it in at this rate of interest or whatever. I go, well, sure. that seems fair. I guess if that's, if that's what you've offered, I assume that's, that's what it is. Some, I'm, yeah. you know, I'm that guy yep. instead of the, and I think a lot of it comes from the fact that I just, don't have that financial confidence, like you said, to yeah. be able to say, no, no, in this situation, I should be able to ask for less or I should sure. be able to renegotiate this, or sure. this is the way that I would, you know, go and get a better bank account or a better power, you know, pro- electricity provider or whatever it is yeah, yeah. that will, you know, help out my life or how I will consolidate my super in a way that, you know, all these things. It, it's not so, and for me, it's not so much about the money, mm. right? For a lot of people who are earning, um, not earning a lot of money, it is, of course. right? It is. But for me, the bigger thing is the confidence of saying I can stand on my own two feet, mm. right? I can look after my family and I, I can make good decisions. And that, I think there is a confidence, um, once people get that, that after sometimes they're going to sound very self-promotional, but after they read my book, they feel like, cause I give them scripts and things mm. that they are able to, um, you know, they are able to, to navigate these things. And that I think once you get that confidence, um, it spills over into other areas of your life. What do you think the biggest, is, is credit cards the biggest mistake, like biggest mistake people make financially, or is there bigger ones than credit cards? Uh, I think credit cards are big. I think what's happening at the moment is afterpay is becoming a huge thing. So anything really that hooks young people at the start of their lives. So what I love about my high school program um, is that I actually go in and show the kids um, who is targeting them. So there's this company called Nimble, right? They are awful. They're just an 
awful company. They have these funny, ironic ads. There's a hipster bunny and they charge, they're payday lenders, they're predators, right? But they, they try and um, make themselves cool to young people. And so what I do in, in my, in my, uh, uh, high school program is I show them the video and everyone laughs. And then what I do is I show them, they've got these, they've turned it into like a catch cry, just nimble it, you know, phone, phone doesn't work, nimble it. And so I take them through how much it actually costs and they are shocked. And at that point, when I show them that, you know, the interest rates are, you know, 40, 50%, they will then that that advertising will never work on them ever again. The CEO of Nimble just loses his mind. But I'm like, you know what? This is what independent education is, right? Everything else is sales message. You're going to hit these kids when they turn 18 and maybe even younger. Um, we need to arm them, right? So I think the main thing what we are seeing now um, is we're seeing afterpay really hitting young people. Um, uh, we're seeing payday lenders that are that are um, targeting. Really, if you leave school, ASIC tells us that the most financially illiterate people are kids that have left school eighteen to twenty-four. They are the most financially illiterate people of in in Australia. So, so if you you haven't learnt about money and you leave school and you are being offered just nimble it, um, credit cards, afterpay, car loans schoolies holidays, um, Botox, um, put on payments. Um, you can, you can screw yourself over really badly. The banks want you because they know they've got 30 years for you to pay that off. Right. And the other thing it does, it just ruins your confidence. And so, yeah, I think that for me, that is the big issue that credit cards are, 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 are a trap for a lot of people. But for me, it's, it's what happens in those first few years of you leaving school that dictates who you are and what you're capable of, and that can colour your entire life. I think one of the um, best things that my parents ever did for me, because they, they certainly, when I was at university, you know, like parents can do, helped me when I needed some help and these sort of things. But the but most of the time they were, yeah, they expected that I had a, I had a job for, you know, the last two years of you know, uni, I basically had a full-time job and studied full-time and, sure. you know, I that paid your way, paid my way. Yeah. And so at the very least I got used to the idea. Now, probably in my mind, it more connected the idea of going, well, if you've got a financial issue, you just have to do some more work and sure. you can deal with well, the that, financial and, and issue. That, but, and that is, that is a, a good link to have. Yeah. And a lot so, of people don't have that. Yeah. That, that, that at the very worst, yeah, at least makes you go, okay, well I can go to work. You know, that I've, I've worked that I've associated in my mind, the idea that if I go and do, do some job, some money will come in. Money comes least. from work. Yeah. But, um, how much of it, like, you know, like you said, you're trying to break that cycle of people looking at their parents and learning bad lessons from their parents. So how do you, how did you put together the way to, to connect with the kids? I guess I'm interested in because I, I see what you've come up with. But how did you actually work out what to come up with? Does that make sense? Yeah. So we, we've got this thing um, in the high school program called the bucket list. And so what I'm trying to do, and these are, just to give you some frame, it's sort of year nine, year 10. So 14, 15 year olds. So peak hormones, everything raging. Yep. Um, and so uh, I did, a, it's a video series um, with Nazim Hussain. Okay, nice. Um, so, and he's the, I'm the straight guy. He's the comedian, mm-hmm. obviously. Uh, and it's a really fun program, but it's really hands-on. Because what I didn't want to do is just talk to kids about even really, um, 
you know, mortgages or anything. I mean, a 15 year old kid doesn't care about a mortgage, right? It's just so far just away too from far them. Away. It's just yeah. too far away. So what we focus on is getting a part-time job. My view is a part-time job is a gateway financial drug. Cause once you do that, so number one, you have to, um, uh, we sh- we t- show them how to do a resume. Right. So that builds their confidence because most kids go, I'm 15. I've never had a job. I've no, ne- don't have any experience. So we start plucking out things that they're good at, right? Lifting their confidence a bit. Then they have to actually go to an external source and get validation with a boss, right? Um, and try and get a job. Once they get a job, um, they have to work with people they normally wouldn't hang out with. Um, they have to do, you know, flip burgers, hopefully, you know, you sit at a grill and maybe get some acne or something from doing that. But they also, you know, they have to do what they're told. Uh, they have to get a bank account. They have to learn about tax later. They'll have to learn about super. So it's just one of those things that, that, um, they're going to have to do. It teaches so many practical things, but with the bucket list, what we're trying to do is getting the students to think of one goal they want. That's at the very start. What's on top of your bucket list. It could be, it could be, um, schoolies, it could be getting a car, it could be traveling, but we get them to focus on that. And then everything cascades back from that in this sort of six week course that we do. And it's about getting a job and setting themselves up so that they can achieve that goal. So for me, it's incredibly practical. Um, and yeah, it's, we've had a, a lot of good feedback from it. It's a huge thing to really, you know, be part of a revolution, as you say, a financial revolution. Yeah. Um, is there... I can imagine, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe, but I can imagine that the financial industries, you know, to describe, you know, them in a very broad sense. Yes. I mean, the last thing that they really want is somebody coming along, you know, financially educating people in these ways. Has there been any pushback from sort of, you know, the the big money world to the idea that you are trying to make people more financially literate? Because part of their success relies on the idea that people aren't financially literate you speak about nim what was it called nimble, nimble? Yeah. right you know like a company like that doesn't want people to know how their business model actually works because part of it is the idea that people don't really know how it works you know i think that there is uh, and you would probably know this better than me um when there is sort of a a reality distortion that happens with dudes earning lots of money in in boards and and ceos of banks I believe that the CEO of Nimble believes that, you know, he's changing the world in, right. he, in his way, shape or form. He, he, he believes that. Mm. Uh, and he just can't understand why I would go into schools and say, you know, this stuff's junk, you know, same way Afterpay believe that they, they believe that they are hand on their heart. Um, it's a budgeting app and they are doing the right thing. My view is they are, I've said it before, they, they're the equivalent of, uh, of uh, financial marijuana in that they're, they're, it's a gateway drug of training kids to spend money they don't have on payments. You know, So I think they all have the view that they are doing stuff that they think is right. And I think we even saw that in the Royal Commission. I mean, these guys were shocked. You know, Fees for no service didn't really hit their radar that, you know, hang on, maybe we shouldn't charge dead people fees. Oh, okay. We, we kind of missed that, you yeah. know? So I think there's a reality distortion that goes on with these people. I don't think inherently they're bad. I guess for me, what I'm saying is I know, that... but you've got to have a fair reality distortion to <laughs> yeah, so not realize that charging dead people is yeah. a little off. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a your, bit your reality sort of yeah. sensor has gone a little astray. If you're yeah. like, hang on, should, once people die, we should stop charging them. Right. Don't you think? 
But yeah, do, do they? Do, I think that um, generally most people are um, are supportive um, of what I'm trying to do. Um, my ultimate aim with this program is not to have it um, have Barefoot Investor logos or anything on it. Uh, my hope is that the government would take this on, uh, and it becomes something that um, the government takes on, and it really has the imprimatur of the government um, to roll this out. I don't want it to be. I understand that I'm a bit of a brand, you know, I'm the barefoot investor and you could argue that I'm just here trying to sell some more books or, you know, trying to push my agenda. So ultimately I've put my own dough in this, but I hope, um, that this ends up with the government and I'm maybe an ambassador, but I've got nothing to do with it. You know, so my goal with this is not to, you know, blow my own trumpet, although I kind of am, but ultimately is to create an institution where we say this actually makes sense. This is a really good use of government money. If we can help these people, it has a long-term benefit. So that's kind of where I'm at. You said you had three kids of your own, is that yes. right? Three kids of your own. And so when you think about being a father yes. and what you hope for your children, yes. what, what is it that you hope that they, the world that they are going to walk into and how they'll be prepared for that world? Well, I mean, I think, um, again, like I, I asked, um, my audience, you know, what's the biggest fear you have for your kids? And it wasn't that, um, house prices are so crazy or, you know, robots taking their jobs. It would be that they are entitled brats, you know, and that is the fear that I have for my kids too. You know, like you, I grew up in the country. I, I didn't have everything given to me. Uh, and I'm of now a different, uh, social or socioeconomic, um, situation, you know, we're doing pretty well. And so the, um, the worry for me is that my kids will grow up to be entitled. That's part of the reason that we're on the farm. So they are cocooned from that, from that a lot. Um, and they get to hang out with me and we do sort of dad things, fix fences badly. Um, and there's always jobs to do. So I think for my kids, what I want them to be is, um, grateful and generous and that's one of the things that my kids, I'm always talking to them about going to schools, um, why we're doing this, why it's important. Um, because I think if you don't talk to your kids about why you're doing stuff, they just kind of naturally assume, you know, I don't know what they assume. You know, I'm, I, they see me tapping on a computer and that same computer is the one they watch Peppa Pig on. So I could just be goofing around, you know. So for me, it's just systematically telling them this is what's important. Uh, and also... Yeah, the Barefoot Investors kids, they got their jam jars. They've right. got to keep doing it, you know. They, they put them up on a pedestal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It doesn't, it doesn't work out well for your brand. Yeah, if they... he's, he's bankrupt. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. not good. <laughs> uh, how, what sort of farmer are you? Because, you know, you're like, you, as you said, you work in the... the I'm the... a Collins Street farmer, as yeah. they call it. So, you know, I, um, so I'm in Romsey, which is about an hour away from, uh, from Melbourne. Um, all my family are kind of farmers. And so really what my farm has become is kind of like a dad's army. So my dad and my uncles come and they basically tell me what I'm doing wrong. So they, they point and tell me what I'm doing wrong and that's fine. But you know, for me, it's not a big source of my income, but the idea that I get to hang out with my dad and, and my uncles and my sons and daughter and just spend time together Man, that is, it's like a privilege. Like it's a total privilege, even though, uh, I'm a, probably a very terrible farmer. I, I ran from the farm, you know, the farm for me yeah, was, yeah. you know, not. Your brother took over the Yeah, farm. so my brother runs the farm with my mum and dad and, uh, and you know, he's, uh, very interested now. I don't think he 
at the time, you know, when he was a kid, sure. saw it as being what he was going to do. And he went away and got a trade and, yep. you know, worked, you know, uh, he's got a, you know, he, he builds and he's a carpenter and he, yeah, he's, I mean, amazingly good practical skills to have as a farmer as well. Sure. Like, you know, and you know, just amazingly good practical skills to have. I remember going to his house one day and then like two days later there was a deck around his house and I was like, what happened? He goes, well, I built the deck. And I was yeah. like, oh yeah, I forgot you can <laughs> yeah, just like do that. Do that. <laughs> and, uh, but that practicality was not something that either my brain just decided it wasn't going to engage with. Mm. And certainly I, I was talking to you, you know, before we started recording about the idea that perhaps I am thinking about moving out of the city to you know, a place that has a little bit of land yeah. attached to it. It wouldn't be a farm, but we might get some animals and like, you know, like, I mean, mm. you know, like a, a horse and a couple of sheep and sure. like a cow or something, but not like a, you know, a but, working farm, but yeah. you know, a place where I'd still have to fix a fence or, or whatever yeah. else, you know, and, and I think I a think place th that has, you know, its own sewerage system on the, on the property rather than something that the city installs. <laughs> you're, not, you're not on town water. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. I mean, for me, um, again, I don't know, you know, part of the whole parenting thing is, um, you never know what your kids are going to be interested in. So, you know, you praise effort. Um, but for me, I realize I've got a really short window with my kids that they want to hang out with me. And so what the farm does, it gives me an excuse to be hanging out with my kids, yeah. hanging out with my boys, uh, and girl, um, as well, she's just the recent one. Yeah. Um, but you know, it just gives me that excuse. So for me, it wasn't so much a love for farming, although I love where I live cause I love being cocooned away with my little family, but it is, it just gives you that, um, excuse to hang out with your kids. And I think that's really special. Did you always want to have kids? Were you just one of those people who never even thought about the idea that you wouldn't have kids? Yeah, I'm, I'm that guy. Yeah. Yeah. And you, the, the thing I always ask people, you mm -hmm. know, about like, you don't have any state of the world fears when, about having children, you know, the. Nah. I came from, I, well, I, it's just me and my sister, but I came from a big extended family. And, uh, and so for me, I never really had any of those hangups and, you know, I have friends that say to me that they're not sure. And I'm like, no one's ever sure. No one's ever sure. You just do it. Um, but yeah, I, I've never had any hangups about that. Were you a, um, a parent that was, uh, nervous about, cause you know, like you've, you've done this, you know, you've got good at these things that you've done in the financial sure. world. Sure. Was the idea of being a parent the first time something that you, like, how did you prepare for it? Were you a studier? Were you one of those guys that I have two friends? I'll give you an example. Yeah. I have two friends who've recently just had their first babies mm -hmm. and, um, two very different approaches. Right. One of them's read every single book and knows every single thing and has every single technique and has listened to every single podcast. Yeah. And the other one's a bit like, Ah, oh, well, I guess if I just paid attention and love it, we'll work the rest out like everybody yeah. has in history. Yeah. If you were going to be the, one of those two jars, which jar are you? I, look, I, I think I'm probably firmly in the middle, but I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate that I have an amazing wife. Um, and, uh, she is unbiased of course, but I think she's the best mum ever. And, uh, well, I mean, you're a good person to think that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, I, I, and to be truthful, like, you know, our kids are, uh, three under six, they are still very much, um, mum focused. Yeah. So, um, the boys now are six and four are coming sort of out of their cocoon and, and seeing, oh, dad's there and we can have fun with dad. We can do play fights with dad. We can yeah. do all that stuff. So I'm sort of starting to, my parenting stuff is really coming out, but I've been really lucky in that I have an amazing wife who, um, 
you know, I just admire so much for all the stuff that she's done. And to an extent, you know, like I, um, I was doing a lot of speaking gigs, um, prior to us having kids. And I was saying to Liz the other day, I reckon I've done probably three speaking gigs in the last six years. I just don't like being away from my family and that's not, I'm not putting a, again, putting myself on, on a pedestal. I just really enjoy being at home with my family. And I think that's a good starting point. It really is. Did you, were you looking for love when you met her? If you, if that's not too personal a question to ask you. I was looking for, but she, she's my producer. Um, I remember going in uh, the first time uh, I met her, I was on the project and I'd never met her before. And, um, I came into the, the Como at channel 10 and I was talking to her, uh, and I, I looked at her and I went, she is the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. And she looked up at me and I was talking to her cause we're on the phone. She looked up at me and looked straight away and kept talking and said, I haven't seen you yet. Um, and so she was not expecting a finance guy that she had to produce, uh, driving a ute with a dog in the back in a check shirt. Um, so I was not what she was expecting clearly. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the rest, as they say, is history. Um, can I ask you this? Cause we've got to finish up soon. We're, 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 this has flown by. You were worried that you were like, you know, would speak in one minute grabs. We've, uh, we've, we've. We could have covered talked. a lot of ground. We, yes. And we could talk for another couple of hours, but we've got about, um, well, officially about nine minutes to go. And I have some uh, regular questions that I sure. ask that I need to get to. So, um, <clears throat> might sound like a big one, but I ask it every uh, episode. What do you think happens when we die? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Do you have any world, you know, kind of belief or philosophy or religion or anything that guides your thoughts around those areas? I'm still, I think I'm still working it out. Um, and I think that being a parent, um, plays into that. And also the nice thing about being on the farm is it gives you plenty of, uh, uh, um, situations to think about that and to discuss it with your kids. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll say that I'm still working that one out. Yeah. That's a good answer. Um, what do you think your greatest strength is? Um, my ability to communicate, uh, in the written form. Uh, and what's it, what's your biggest weakness? Uh, generally that I don't have a filter, which is why I tend not to do a lot of interviews. Um, you know, uh, I had Andrew Denton wanted me on his show. Uh, he had that, that TV show yeah. and I was like, no, <laughs> I do not want to go on that show. I'm, kind of a pretty what, private person. What was your fear of going on the show? I just, I'm a private person. I don't like really talking about myself. Um, maybe that is the whole country upbringing, but I just, I just don't, um, I don't enjoy talking about myself and I'm, I tend to try and, um, maybe I, you know, I just, I, I don't want to appear guarded. Um, but I'm naturally a very open person. So it, it is just that idea when you, when you become a public person, which is kind of what the book has propelled me into it, it, it all, it's kind of, there's a vulnerability there that I don't like going, but because we work together, you know, I had to, I had to come on. Well, I appreciate that. It's very generous of you. Thank and, you. and I completely understand that. Like yeah. I, you know, live my life in public, but yeah. there are many aspects of my life that I don't believe there are anybody's business. And, yeah. and you do, you know, I can understand the idea that, you know, suddenly you realize you do have to, you know, have people these... are interested in stuff, yeah, you know, and, 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 uh, and I, I find that weird 
Um, and, uh, and yeah, it's important to keep things pri- some things private. Uh, if you could take a skill from somebody else, and it doesn't need to be, it could be a, you know, a physical skill, it could be a mental skill, it could be singing, dancing, it could, you know, uh, but it can be anything. If you could, is there a skill that somebody else has that you very much admire that you would love to have yourself? Yeah, I think the skill would be from my father and my father is one of the, uh, uh, most optimistic, uh, uh, and happiest people I know. Um, he has, um, found his lot in life. Uh, and he's, he's very happy when you, when you meet him, um, he's incredibly warm and engaging and just really bloody happy with where he's at. Um, and I think as I get older, um, I, I see that as something that I want to aspire to. Um, we're nearly done. We're almost there. You've almost made it right to the end. I only got a couple more up my sleeve. Yes. Uh, when people speak about you behind your back, what would you hope they would be saying? I would hope that they would say, um, I've heard about the barefoot investor and I thought that maybe, um, he was all for himself, but with what he's done, um, He's made a difference. One more. It's the time mach- the time machine question. Yes. So I have a time machine. Yes. Um, you can go. You can go back to a moment in history and change or observe it. But I prefer if you use the trip to go back to a moment in your own life to either observe it, you know, just to be able to watch something that happened in yep. your life. Yep. Um, or two, if you would like, change a moment in your life if you feel like there's one moment that you would like to change. Um, a, what would you do? And, uh, can you, can you, you've got a round trip on a time machine. You can do with it, whatever you would like to do with it. I think, um, you know, really the, the big part of my life was the day of those fires. Um, and, uh, I think I'm pretty happy with how I dealt with with that. It was sort of the first, it was really my, a big adult moment for me. Um, you know, your cocoon is shattered and you know, everything about you that you have is, is gone. So I, I think that I handled that pretty well. I think in the aftermath, I, um, I had a lot of different emotions because I, um, and part of it was, you know, I was, I was in the media at that time and I, I felt really invaded. So I don't think I behaved I, I was a little bit, I don't think I was as, um, kind to people in the media because everyone wanted to, um, get the story. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know whether that is, answers your question or not. Oh, I, look, we started with the fire and we finished with the fire and I think that's actually got a nice, you know, arc to it. Yeah. Arc and symmetry to it. And I think, you, you know, it is kind of important and, you know, it occurred to me when you were first talking about how the media were interested in it, it just how invasive that must have felt. It's terribly invasive. Because it's not actually really a story either. Like, it's not a story that's any of their business. Like, it's not like you started the fire. Like, do you (laughs) mean, like, that's, if that, that would be a story. That's a reason for people to pursue somebody. And I think that's what changed really. I don't, I don't consume a lot of traditional media anymore. Um, And uh, I think if there's a, if there's a point in my life where things really changed for me, it was then. Um, And then, the process of then, um, 
becoming someone who's known, seeing a lot of the stuff that's written about me that's just not true and a lot of things that are written about people I know that I know is not true. So I kind of, and, and also my wife is in the media as well. We kind of know how the game is played and how the sausage is made. So I think that is, um, that was a learning lesson. Mate, um, I'm so grateful that you came and did this. Thank you. Uh, look, you know, I know that it's not about, you know, plugging your books, but there was a Barefoot Investor and then there's the one that, for kids, which is called the Barefoot Investor for Barefoot families. Investor. So there's Barefoot Investor, the only money guide you'll ever need. Yes. And there's Barefoot <laughs> Investor for families together, a couple of million copies and hopefully going to continue selling. Yeah. And, you know, it's just a nice practical place for people to be able to start. You know, if you, if you want to, I want to change the way... I have a relationship with money. Yeah. Um, you know, as good a starter place to start as any. Yeah. And barefootmoneymovement.org uh, is the not-for-profit that we've set up to do the schools program. Good luck, my friend. Um, Thank you. This has been a real pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed it. And I, I hope have. you haven't felt invaded. <laughs> <laughs> that um, comes after. Yeah. No, I appreciate it, mate. Thank you.